Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. So this is Jonathan Cantor, and I'm doing an interview for Dialogues in Dermatology. I am the editor of JAD International, and I have the honor today of interviewing someone who really needs no introduction. Dr. Lawrence Field has such a long list of honors and experience that it's really hard to pick what to mention. He, of course, is very well known in the field of dermatology for his pioneering work in dermatologic surgery. He has been called the father of international dermatologic surgery. He is the founder of the International Traveling Mentor Program, and he continues to be active in education, even at the age, I believe, of 93 now. And Dr. Field, thank you so much for joining us today. And we really appreciate you taking the time. 91 is enough. (laughs) (laughs) I was upgrading you. Well, I know. May it happen. There we go. Exactly. So, Dr. Field, first of all, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with us today. Again, I know you have so much going on and so many demands on your time. And I suppose one thing that a lot of our listeners would like to know about is, as somebody from that first generation of dermatologists who really had the privilege of training directly with Dr. Mose. Any thoughts you have, first of all, on how Dr. Mose would be thinking about what has happened over the past 50, 60 years in dermatology and in dermatologic surgery? Any reflections that you'd like to share, taking that long view perspective? Well, the longest view is, if I go back to the University of Wisconsin, I was there in 1951 and I was Dr. Mose gopher. Hey, Field, go for this, go for that. And I spent a couple of years doing that with him. All my life, I had a cryostat in my office. I did whatever I had to do, but I'm not a Mohs surgeon. There was no such thing in those days. But in those early days, there was a very egotistical surgeon there whose name was Carreri, and he developed Dextran, which saved thousands of lives in the Korean War. He thought he would get the Nobel Prize. And when Dr. Mose, who had a little tiny room in the back where he was working, playing, learning, to Dr. Carrari, there goes that crazy Fred Mose. I remember him in my mind. There goes that crazy Fred Mose. And he would shuffle a little bit going down the hallways, holding pieces of tissue. Well, today, Dr. Mose is immortal, as he should be. Nobody's ever heard of Dr. Carrari, who thought for all he did, that he would get the Nobel Prize. And that's a true story. That's a perspective in life. And I think it bespeaks Dr. Moe's dedication to his work. He spent his life trying to prove he was correct. And everyone listening to this, I hope, knows he was correct. There's no procedure which has a higher cure rate for cancer at the present time. And that's my memory of Fred Moe's. Wonderful. Thank you. And If Dr. Mose were here today, any insights or perspectives you think he would share with us, whether as individual dermatologists, dermatologic surgeons, or even beyond that, philosophically? Of course, Fred Mose was not a dermatologist nor a surgeon. They think maybe he had a surgical internship, maybe. I think he would be proud that in every university in this country, they must have an academic Mose surgeon today, fellowship trained, if you will. That has been a progressive change in our world and one for the good. And it's seen in the successful intake of dermatologists as a specialty in being the nation's cancer specialist. It's no longer surgeons. 
not plastic surgeons, it's dermatologists. I took a lot of heat. When I was starting, you know, if dermatologists did a punch biopsy, they argued if they put in a suture or not. And today, unquestioned, that's correct. They argued that you can't do surgery, you're a dermatologist. The dermatologist said that. My chief of dermatology at Stanford, Dr. Farber, psoriasis specialist of the world, my God, you can't do that field. But Dr. Farber, they heal better. Hey, and eventually it was, hey, Field, would you come do this for my patients? That's what happened at Stanford when I was there. So it's been an evolution, dynamic, and Mose has played a critically important role in his conceptualization and his repeated proving of what, what he was doing was correct, and there's no doubt. He has to rest easy in his grave. Wonderful. Dr. Field, as the founder of the International Mentorship Training Program, which really focuses on teaching dermatologic surgery skills to the international community, what were some of the reasons that you felt that needed to happen? What were some of the driving forces that led you to say, hey, this is a program, this is a direction that I need to go in, and specialty at large needs to go in as well? Well, I think it had to date back to my own personal experiences with trying to get knowledge, especially in this country, because there are things I wanted to learn to do, which I couldn't do. Doors were closed to me. Even the chairman of my department at Stanford, Dr. Farber, who was a psoriasis man, didn't see any new, there's no need for you, field to learn how to do this. Well, biopsies heal better, Dr. Farber, if you put in two sutures in them along the wrinkle line. They, they look better, but it didn't impact on him. And a whole variety of different things that happened to my own search to the point that I had to go overseas. I had to go uh, to London to learn blepharoplasty. I had to go to an ENT man's practice in Philadelphia to be able to learn rhytidectomies. I had to go to Italy to learn in France to learn liposuction things I had to do to move, even to get the exposure. So as I traveled to teach internationally or to lecture, and I realized they're having the same problem that I had in all these different countries. Nobody will teach them anything, even though they want to learn, because it involves the skin, and the skin is our organ. It's not their organ, it's our organ. So to be able to do everything to the skin, we have to learn. So what I could teach them, I would teach them. I would go, I paid for the fare, I paid for my hotel, I paid for whatever I had to do to teach them. I never charged anything. As an intern, as a medical student, in a New Sigma Nu fraternity, I took the Hippocratic Oath. I will not charge those I should teach to take better care of people. That's my honor that they'll listen to me and my privilege, who I never have in my whole life. I don't say, I'll charge you this much for that, this much. No, never. And I'm proud of that. Maybe the world's changed that much, but I have not. So that was really the evolution to give them the head start of it took me years to get. And then 
to set up the NIDIS of training. And now with the auspices of Dr. Glenn Goldman and Todd Holmes of the University of Vermont, they're the driving Mohs forces, Mohs surgeons forces to establish fellowships. There's now a fellowship committee of the ASDS, which is International, DOZL, Dermatologic Anesthetic International Surgical League also has a committee. They work together with the ASDS. They're affiliated with it. So it's an expanding thing of a more formalized procedure, procedural teaching in different countries. And we now have formal fellowships affiliated with the ASDS, I think, in four or five countries. Many others are awaiting inspection, which still has to be done. And it will be done because it's the right thing to do. And if other specialties have any sense, they'll come to the ASDS and say, teach us how to set up this type of program in ophthalmology, in ENT, in something else, so that people where they don't have that opportunity can have it. But certainly for dermatology, it has worked very, very well. Wonderful. And I think the theme of living a life of service and really remembering kind of why we all became physicians, I think it's so important. I think it really resonates. And I think there is a strong undercurrent in dermatology of those of us who think we are physicians first and dermatologists second, and that our goal is, you know, really to take care of patients. And it's sort of like that, that old line of just a dermatologist that I think a lot of people really are trying to expand that to say, listen, what can we do to make a difference for individual patients, for their individual lives? And whether that is on the individual direct level with patient care in your office or in somebody else's office or in your academic department, or whether that's kind of trying to expand that and trying to really you know, get more involved in international education, whether or to broaden. Again, of course, right now, I'd be remiss not to mention the importance of really trying to maintain the idea that we want to provide dermatology services as broadly as possible within our own communities, because you don't have to necessarily look internationally to find underserved communities and those who have not necessarily received the care that they should be getting and that they need to be getting. So I think that's such an important idea. And the idea of service really is paramount there. Any thoughts, you know, as touching on your idea of service, any thoughts on other directions that can go in. Let's say you've got somebody who's not necessarily a uh, dermatologic surgeon or that that's not really an area of interest for them. Thoughts and advice that you might want to dispense to those listening about directions that they could consider going in that might really be helpful to the community at large. Well, I think everyone should have a helpful hobby. A helpful hobby where you enjoy it and where it serves in some way there's an outreach from yourself to the community. And whether it's planting trees or cleaning up the ditches around the lake or whatever it is. Myself, a long time ago, they formed a bagpipe band in the community in which I practiced. And with my 11-year-old son, I said, Scott, let's go down and learn bagpipes. So we went down and he was within three weeks brilliant and I was still fumbling, and I said, no, there's got to be another way for a proud old Marine. So I decided I'd learn how to be a drum major, and I did that 60 years, still do. I still go out for my walks here in New Braunfels, Texas, and sometimes I take my mace, that's that big stick that the people have in the front, and I'll walk along the street trying to march 
although I have difficulty with neuropathy now, so I can't balance well, but I do. And I still take my iPhone, I turn on my Scottish music and there's a bagpipe band playing and I march for myself with my band in my head. And I still enjoy that. So I think no matter what it is, whether you write poetry, which I can't imagine myself doing, or uh, painting, which I also can't imagine myself doing, because I'm more a doer, I think, and I, I'd rather do something that helps, no matter what it is, in the community. And there are always opportunities. And I think it's really important, because when you get old and you're not practicing anymore and earning the overhead of an office, there are a lot of hours in a day, and you have to have something worthwhile to do, not just doing things that make no difference to the world, to me. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Field, I want to say thank you again so much for, for joining me for this brief conversation. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we haven't touched on that maybe you'd like to share with the listeners? I'll introduce Dr. Lill is behind me. Patrick, you <clears throat> want to plug in? Well, I've got an interesting story about Dr. Field. So my first encounter with Dr. Field was when I was an intern in Los Angeles in 1975. And I was going back to the University of Iowa for a Durham residency. And the place that appealed to me most in California was where he practiced in San Luis Obispo. I'd never heard of him. Uh, I think there were three or four dermatologists there at the time. And I picked his name at random. And I wrote him a letter saying, could I come up and visit? And he wrote me back a letter saying, you're lucky you contacted me because nobody else would have answered you. And uh, so he invited me up, had hair down on my shoulders. I pulled into this Marine's office with a tank top and fringe cutoffs and sandals oh. on. And so he was very gracious, showed me around, took me to his house. His housekeeper cooked us dinner. I, was, I got into my little Alfa Romeo convertible to go back to L.A., and he leaned on the car, and he looked at me and said, Patrick, I've been watching you today, and my opinion is you'll be nothing but a playboy. <laughs> and that was our first meeting. Uh, he didn't remember. He does, still doesn't remember it. But 13 years later, I was giving my first lecture on tumescent liposuction in Edinburgh, Scotland. Dr. Field was in the audience, and uh, during the lecture, he came up and stopped my lecture. He pointed at the uh, picture of bright yellow fat versus basically a bottle of blood, and he said, if this is true, and he looked at me, and he said, and I mean if, like, who in the hell are you? This will change the way this procedure is done. It will make it ours. And we've been, become uh, lifelong friends. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much. I'm glad he brought up liposuction because in dermatology, I tell every dermatologist that may want to listen to this, if you don't know how to take some fat and do lipotransfer, which is a very simple thing, if you allow your patients to go see a plastic surgeon, be put in a hospital and run those risks for a 10-minute procedure to harvest 30 cc's of fat from a fat belly, that's virtually criminal. It's so easy to do. The fat is fed by the cutaneous circulation, belongs to us as a specialty, as a specialty. And those of you who don't do it 
or only want to do it when you have a laser that'll do something or something else that costs $100,000 is tragic. It is tragic. And as long as I have this audience and I spent my life fighting against bleeding at surgery, not to know surgical tumescent anesthesia for surgery, because if you use surgical tumescent anesthesia, other than the central third of the face in very deep lesions, where you're after it for moles, you will not have bleeding properly done. It just doesn't happen. So every month I read about this for bleeding and that for bleeding and cauterizing this and this chemical. It's all unnecessary. And every time I read it, I think, my God, I haven't cauterized something other than what we're talking about for skin surgery in 20 years. 20 years. I haven't done that. So if you're sitting there with a smoke evacuator and smoke in your room and burning your patients, putting that additional injury in a wound, that's not right. You just have to learn that. And it was published, I think, in 2001. So people are really remiss in that. And I, I can't imagine. I think I've just spent too many years overseas. In Greece, nobody does it. Indonesia, nobody does it. Different countries I have visited and spent time, they don't do that anymore. So and that method of anesthesia will be the keynote address at the Green Road. Greenway surgical course this year. Those who want to tune in, uh, you know, on the net because it's all that way now. But it's absolutely the way to go because I have students who had nothing to do with surgery, nothing, who learn that technique and can do their surgery with no bleeding, and they send me their cases to prove it. So those of you who still do those things, uh, I would certainly. Thank Dr. Kander and Dialogues in Dermatology for a new vista for you. And I truly mean it. So learn to take fat and learn to not have bleeding. You have to treat. Thank you again, Dr. Field, so much for taking the time to speak with us at Dialogues in Dermatology today. And, you know, really, it's, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to have somebody with so much perspective and who's had been such a force for good and such a force for international outreach and education in our field. Uh, and thank you again, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time, and stay safe and be well. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. You too. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.